And so I spoke differently, I acted differently, I moved differently. And that wasn't always received well. And I had to go to therapy to really understand how do I fit into this place where I don't really feel like I'm wanted. What does American identity mean to people whose ancestors were forced to come to America? In the second part of our series on this topic, Cornelius Finlay and Matthew B. Holloway II, two exchange alumni who share a connection to the Southern United States, as well as to multiple exchange programs, talk about the either or of American identity, going for broke, and how their international experiences have shaped their journeys towards self-discovery and truth. Cornelius starts off the conversation. American identity isn't necessarily the identity that always uplifts, encourages, nurtures, fosters, and takes care of the identities who have always been there for me, and that is Black women. And so if we don't, this is this is essentially, and it kind of goes back to what my brother Matthew was saying in a sense of discovering oneself through the unpacking of the historical significance of not only who you are, but also to who you are connected to. And often at times that connection is based off of your last name or the historicities that's connected to your last name. And so American identity has done nothing for black folk in the hood. And so therefore it hasn't been done anything for my grandmother. I want to comment on something you just said, Cornelius, is um, the, um, the black life experience and how it gets told in, on a national level. That's something that I've had to do some deeper thinking is because it seems like um, from our, in our national discourse and our national understanding of what it means to depict black life, we depict it in one or two ways. We depict it in extremities. So we either tell the trauma story or we tell the heroic story of just achieving beyond um, insurmountable obstacles. And we don't tell the in-between story. And that's the story where most people just live is in the between. And, and then the, the danger of just telling the story, the trauma story, telling the heroic stories that people think that we're in exceptional. Either we're exceptional in our suffering or we're exceptional in our achievement. And we're both and and neither nor. We're just human. And I think the time where we can allow Black life to be depicted as messy, as complicated, as nuanced, as textured, that you can be both in going through oppression, trauma, hardship, difficulty, and still find time to laugh at fellowship and dare I say love. And it is almost shocking to individuals that those two worlds can coexist, but that's all there actually is, is those two dynamics of the rhythms of life and the blues of life intersecting. And when we talk about Black life, we either we detangle them and hyper-focuses on the blues or the rhythms and not try to put them together to tell a more complicated story about who we are, that we're not exceptional to our pain and we're not exceptional in our achievement. We're just human. That's nicely said, brother. I think for me, 
American identity isn't necessarily an identity that I would even want to subscribe to. Uh, and I, I wouldn't want to subscribe to it because of the fact of the, 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 the contributions that America granted to not only my family, but the families within the neighborhood that still exist to this day, that often at times or always at times is the most neglected. And I don't think that's a, a form of trauma. That is how capitalism works someone has to be poor and you just hope and pray that that someone isn't you and if it is you then you hope and pray that you can have a story of victory when i look at my identity my identity is the complexity of what black masculinity is supposed to be it doesn't supposed to be confined to any room to any space to any idea to any notion of what society deems a black man can, should, or ought to be. My identity is the identity of what a person in the hood is said to be. It shouldn't be confined to my zip code. It shouldn't be confined to my race. It shouldn't be confined to my sexuality, but it should be more confined to my ability to not only uplift, but also to encourage and modernize what W.E.B. Du Bois created so well back in the day, and that's the talented tent. So whereas we go back and we bring this funk, and we're not just talking about the pink funk, we're not just talking about the blues, we're not talking about R&B, and we sure ain't talking about rap, but we're talking about a funk that's committed to our community in the form of an uplift to whereas you go back and you reach and you teach and you just pray and hope that those seeds that you planted, that somebody else will come back and water because of what you have done. And so my identity is complexity. Mm -hmm. And I want America to understand the beauty of complexity and not the beauty of wearing the mask that grins and lies, that hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. And so when you mention what is American identity without any ego and without any pretense, American identity is Cornelius Tyrone Finley. And we won't never forget the Tyrone because even though the Tyrone may have been what put me on first 48 or what may have put me on probation or what may have made me put, put me in a circumstance where as I was shot and that I was placed under an investigation for two murders that I ain't commit. Uh, that is the same identity that makes me understand that if Black English isn't a language, then tell me what is, as Baldwin said. And so that is American identity to me, is the understanding the complexity of self, the absurdity that's connected to self, and then being able to saunter in a room and be unapologetic about yourself. As an exchange alumni, of both the Gilman Scholarship Program and Fulbright Scholarship Program, and with his law degree from Oxford University, Cornelius could indeed saunter into a room. And yet, he believes there is another way to enter a room and be inclusive. While Matthew, a Fulbright English teaching assistant alumnus, thinks it's time to remove the social mask that fills us with a false sense of belonging. I want to add, you know, I was talking to my Spelman sister this morning after a call, and um, 
I was telling her about the email that Oxford sent to me. And she was like, you know what, you, you really never talk about, you know, when you were in London, your your degrees, you, you really never talk about that stuff. And and I think what happens, especially with the bourgeoisie black folk, is that you know we are in an we are in a state in a world, not just in America, but in a world to whereas we are always competing, competing with oneself, competing with the other people, competing with isms racism, sexism, all these forms of isms that seek to really destroy and take away our existence. And we're always having to fight. We having to, 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 to go, as Baldwin said, for broke and sometimes literally. And, you know, uh, one of the poems that always stick out to me, it's with, uh, with the, the writer who, 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 who was so genius with the four color girls. And it, it talked about how uh, this woman got connected to a man and he, mo he almost walked off with all her stuff. And what she meant, it was that he almost walked off with her being and, 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 and he almost took everything from her to where she would have been existentially bankrupt. And when you talk about American identity, I think sometimes with, with Black folk or with people of color who are educated, we are sauntering and walking and, and entering into the space with our credentials and not understanding that that's not who we are. Our identity and how we should how we should walk into spaces through our story and our experiences because once people see those complexities then the degrees will speak for themselves and so I, I like to always enter into a space and I haven't always been like this because I have previously been an egotistical fool in the sense of to whereas I am entering into the space and I'm telling you all of my credentials and all of the things that I have and all of my assets, but that also too brought me into the company with people who wanted to strip my being away from me, who looked like me. And so it's like, okay, I'm getting this from society, but then I'm also getting this in my personal life. And so how do I change that? And, and the way of changing that is entering into spaces with vulnerability. And with the level of modesty to ensure that you come in with no pretense and you're sauntering and combining uh, the brilliance of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois to whereas we, 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 can, we can speak to the common folk, but we also speak to the folk who also want to think that they are a little bit better to bring in the resources for our most vulnerable folk. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It, it reminds me of just sort of, because I feel like to tell the story of American identity, it's to tell a story of a country always in search of belonging. And that goes back to sort of, you think about the people who founded the United States and the original premise. They were looking to find themselves outside of themselves, right? That frontier mindset, the voyager, the person who was gonna go out and seek opportunities and i think that culture we even we, we've retained that cultural inheritance to this day where we are convinced culturally 
that who we are is somewhere outside of us. And so we have to go find that person. And so we're going to find it in our jobs. We're going to find it in our spouses. We're going to find it in our careers. We're going to find it somewhere because it could not exist where I am right now. It just can't. It's just too simple. And I think right now, as we're going through this social dying, is people are recognizing that maybe who I was and who I can be was already within me. And that the stories that I've told that I have to play it by the society's rules on their terms, I actually have to actually define it for myself. I think it's revolutionary that you can make an argument the first time in human history, people can actually be paid to be themselves. There's some kid right now who's on YouTube who just wants to play video games and there's people all around the world who just want to watch and play video games. It's revolutionary where people now have the ability to be complex in public and not have to somehow compartmentalize who they are in order to survive, in order to fit in. Because we learned this early on in childhood. We learn quickly, what do I need to say or do and act in order to feel like I belong? And we develop certain personalities. I'm the smart one. I'm the funny one. I'm the pretty one. I'm that one because I've learned that what gives me love. The danger of that is that that's really not rooted in belonging, deep belonging. That's rooted in fitting in and just adapting to a traumatic experience to find your way through. And somehow we've carried that over into adulthood if we don't do the process of detangling how we had to adapt to a lack of fitting and to a lack of belonging and how we have really created an ego or a mass, a social mass that allowed us to feel a false sense of belonging in order to get what we want out of society. And I think it's revolutionary when people start to realize that there's a cost to fitting in. You lose yourself. And so before we can belong to any social construct, we have to know what it means to belong to ourselves wholly, to be a whole being who is both profane and profound. What does that mean? And I think that's the work that we're doing right now in the 21st century. It's going through that dying process and coming out through a transformative experience. And I think to Cornelia's point, in the African-American experience, one thing that in terms of the cultural inheritance that we have inherited, that can make a Cornelius or make a Matthew comes from this situation, this circumstance, be here in life, is that that's the way of our ancestors. It's that you have to understand that we have got to go through so many transformations from the fact that you take enslaved folks, put them on a middle passage where they don't know each other, they get to a land unknown, they don't speak the same language, they don't even speak the language of the person who's taken them and somehow have to find a way to rebirth themselves. And our journey of impression has actually made us quite magical at shape-shifting, at reinvention, because we know that when we're limited and constricted and who we can be, it forces us to create a deep sense of imagination that allow us to take slops that we were given and make cuisine, that allows us to take the inability to not learn English and make a vernacular and make a whole language out of it. It's that we created culture where we weren't allowed to and somehow found ourselves again and again and again, because we've learned the process of how to restore oneself when trauma hits you. Because I think one of the deadliest things that the story that people believe is that violence, where there is violence, that's the only thing that can happen. 
And the beauty of the human experience is that you can go through the most traumatic things in the world, but they still don't have to define you as a person because of the capacity. We have an innate and really amazing capacity to transform ourselves even under the most, under the most arduous circumstances. For both Matthew and Cornelius, their exchange experiences proved to be transformative, giving each of them the opportunity to explore their true selves and to reject old stereotypes. Their exchanges also helped them in other ways. For me, it was, God, it was powerful in the sense I grew up in an all-Black world growing up at home uh, when I was a child. So I never, I, n- I never thought of myself as a minority. I just, I didn't know I was a minority. I, I, cause I just, I watched, I saw black people all around me. I saw black professionals. I saw all the spectrum of people. They were just black people. So it was just sort of normal to see black people in complexity and normalcy. But I think as I went to college and recognized that that wasn't the experience of many other folks, I was the president of my Black Student Union. And so seeing how being in predominantly white spaces had really affected the Black development of many of my uh, Black counterparts really took a number on me and it started to affect how I began to conform myself to standards that weren't germane to who I was. And I think when I went to Panama in a country that's majority uh, sort of brown and has a lot of sort of Afro uh, diasporic uh, history and legacy to it, I just, It was the first time in my adult life where I didn't have to be black. I just wasn't, and I didn't need to say it. I didn't need to perform it. I just, it just was, which allowed me at 24 to then explore other aspects of myself. I think William Cross, who's, uh, he did the, the work on black identity development psychology. He says, one of the things about racism is that it strips a person who is multidimensional into a single identity marker. And so much of the politics of belonging in America is stripping complex people into single identity markers and having them hyper-focus on that one aspect of themselves while neglecting all these other parts of them. So in Panama, I got the opportunity to explore just Matthew and what was that person like, irrespective of the external identities that I have agreed to take on, who was that person? And what came out of that was recognizing that I just belong to myself. And before I am Black, before I'm American, before I'm all these external identities, I have to be clear on who is Matthew. And when I got back from the Fulbright, I went through a really bad case of reverse cultural shock because I hopped back in Chicago, I got back into the working world, and I saw in the most subtle ways the way I had um, aligned and Uh, sort of conformed my identity to please white folks. I saw it, I saw it more clearly. And there was a a negative resistance to wanting to be like that again, differently. I acted differently, I moved differently. And that wasn't always perceivable. And I had to go to therapy to really understand how do I fit into this place where I don't really feel like I'm wanted. You know, there's a difference. We know when we feel wanted versus when we just feel sort of brought in and accepted. It was like, you know, you know the difference. And when I was in Panama, I felt wanted. I didn't feel like I had to convince people that there was a desire in knowing me and and experiencing my company. And I feel like in the politics of belonging in America, 
sometimes we have to prove to people that we're worth it. And I didn't want to prove to people that anymore. And so I, I had to find a way to turn this frustration to something because I was I was considering leaving the States and just going back to where I felt wanted. Why would I, I mean, it makes sense. Why would you be somewhere where you don't feel like somebody wants you there and they're just accepting you, they're placating you. Um, but then I realized I had to do something about that. So I joined the Obama Foundation's Community Leadership Corps and do that experience of seeing Black and Latin ex-Chicagoans fighting for this place of Chicago, fighting, feeling entitled to this place, being like, this is, I, I belong here. And because I belong here, I'm entitled to feel like I, I'm worthy. And I, you need to see me and you need to feel me and you need to hear me. And I'm not going away. This is my land. That I needed to hear that story because I think this is also another side effect of racism that it convinces you that you're right. This isn't my land. This place isn't for me. And they win. It, they win when you believe that you don't have an entitlement to this space. You don't have entitlement to feel dignified in the country where all, you, all your ancestors are from. And that this country is just as much as theirs as it is yours. And because of that, there's a responsibility, there's an obligation to keep moving it forward. And had that experience not happened, I think I would have allowed them to convince me that this is not my own, that my story too matters. And that rather than let me write me out the story, I'm just gonna write myself a new story. Given, given is what really helped me see that there was so much more to life uh, and there was so much more to me. Uh, it kind of goes back to what Matthew was saying and the, the, the it, before you can be anything for anyone else, you, 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 get, you have to get yourself together. <laughs> uh, and, and, and what that means is that you have to kind of understand how to navigate spaces and navigate those spaces by understanding that you are a complex individual and being unapologetic about those complexities. So my time at Gilman was literally happened the, the, um, the summer after I got shot. So I got shot that summer and I went to, to, <laughs> to the UK uh, in the fall. And, 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 and that, was, that, was, that was something that I needed. Uh, I'm, I'm ecstatic and grateful that Morehouse took a chance on me and didn't give up on me because of my, my past and because of my current mindset at the time. And so that, that, that opportunity, I was able to meet so many different people, uh, so many different people in the sense of feeding my soul, but also to challenging my, my very, very narrow and very, very, to be honest with you, ignorant perspective about life, about identity. Um, and because of those challenges, it made me diverse in perspective. And so what diversity is, is changing perspective and honoring perspective so much so that if you hear a different form of thought, if you see a different understanding, you don't condemn it, you don't disown it, you don't dismiss it, but what you do is you allow it to, to challenge you to think differently, 
and to be unapologetic about your ignorance so that that you can continue to be educated on various things and various identities and various various perspectives that's diversity so if you have a whole bunch of people in the room uh who are of a different race who look differently aesthetically but at the end of the day all of these individuals have these ideas of what I call Trumpisms, um, whereas diversity is that you have people who who come in with different experiences, and those different experiences begin to shift thought, and that's when intellect begins to penetrate these these walls that we put up that often at times uh, keep certain people out, and that's what Gilman did for me. I think you know Oxford was an opportunity for me to understand the danger of being a token, but also to the beauty of being a token because that was my stage to show my colleagues, my professors, that this idea of black male identity via the fabric of being African-American doesn't look a certain way. It's very complex. And I have the opportunity to use my intellect and my intelligence uh, via this, this great honor of growing into a great barrister to show these folk that a black man from America, a black man from the inner city of Dallas uh, doesn't look the way that you see on TV. And so that was a challenge for me. Uh, I didn't always win with the challenge, <laughs> but as Douglas said, Frederick Douglas said, you know, there is, there is no progress without struggle. And so that was a different form of struggle for me. And, and my experience at Oxford led to me going to Middlesex, which is a university in, um, Think it's like North London, whereas I got my LLM in international human rights, where minority and the rights, and and I specialize in international corporate law. And a lot of people would say, you know, that, that that's such an oxymoron, Cornelius. You know, you you you're focusing on minority rights and how to finesse the law to ensure uh, people who are of vulnerable groups can get some things, but at the same time, you want to be a part of a law or a system that that deprives those actual people who you are advocating for access. And so what I was able to do was to show that when you amalgamate two things that often at times conflict and you have the right heart because that heart is dictated by purpose, you have now the control to grant opportunity to, to, to the folk who, who are always dismissed and neglected. My international experience, it, again, is the essence of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And, 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 and that, for me, is, is, is what we need to push more, push for a little bit more. I had the opportunity recently uh, to speak to someone from the U.S. Speakers 
program with the uh, department, of, uh, the U.S. Department of State, and so they 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 have welcomed me into this program, the U.S. Speakers Program, uh, to to you know to, to to meet with people on a political level, to to talk about this thing, and, and and that came from the opportunity in Minneapolis. Some people, I don't know if it was you guys, but some people from the Department of State, and if it was y'all, thank y'all. Um, some people from the Department of State said, hey, this brother, he has it uh, and we need him to be a part of it. We need him to travel around the world and to, to, to tell this unique story. That is what Gilman did. And that is the essence of transcendentalism meeting uh, culture. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, I will always be forever. Next up on Voices of Exchange... We hear from two climate activists, one of whom is focusing on nature-based climate solutions, and another who had a secret she could only share after returning home from her international exchange experience. 